0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Twitter has come under scrutiny after it permanently blocked President Trump's account. So where does free speech come into play? And what does it mean as social media platforms like Parler reemerge? Then, from extreme drought to intense wildfires to dwindling snowpack, where Colorado fits into the global picture of climate change? But, says NASA research scientist, not all hope is lost.
1: It will take a Herculean effort to turn the ship around, but it can always be done. And any reduction in emissions is an improvement.
0: And the pandemic reshaped the first day back at the Capitol for state lawmakers. It's also reshaping the entire session. The Purplish team explores the priorities for Colorado legislators, plus a special moment that shows political harmony may be possible.
2: During a time when so many of us have been physically distanced from friends, neighbors, and colleagues, your generous support has helped Colorado Public Radio bridge the gaps, bringing our community together through the stories that connect us all. Voluntary support is the lifeblood of the content and coverage we all rely on.
3: Thank you for being our partner in making this kind of radio happen for the Colorado community each and every day.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC, I'm Avery Lill. In the lead up to the insurrection earlier this month, the FBI said pro-Trump extremists were communicating and solidifying plans to storm the Capitol using social media. Following the riots, platforms like Twitter and Facebook cracked down by banning content and users who incited violence including President Donald Trump. Do these bans constitute a violation of free speech? And what are people using to organize now? Let's talk about it with Casey Fiesler and Benjamin Teitelbaum. Casey is an assistant professor of information science at CU Boulder. And Benjamin is an assistant professor of ethnomusicology and international affairs at CU Boulder. Welcome to you both. Thank you.
2: Great to be with you.
0: Benjamin, how did social media contribute to the coalescing of the far right?
2: Well, it certainly allowed for, for a sharing of, of news, for for the, the creation of, let's say, a, a sort of discourse and vocabulary that was specific to to that population. I think what, what some people um, miss also is that, especially in the early days of the Trump campaign, social media was being used to bring people together face-to-face. There was actually a sort of offline socializing that was going on that was dependent upon the online socializing and certainly made the feeling of community and solidarity among those actors much stronger than it would have been otherwise.
0: And tell me a little bit more about that. Do you mean locally people were meeting up who had met on Facebook per se?
2: Yes, exactly. Exactly. People who were lived near to each other but weren't necessarily neighbors could could come away from from those experiences thinking that there was really a local grassroots movement, even though a lot of it was being coordinated. At a national level by people within the Trump campaign and also affiliated uh, political action communities and things like that
0: and how did President Trump's Twitter feed feed into their ideology?
2: well Pre- President Trump w- w- what is significant to me about his Twitter feed is that it it the people following it and that universe that was attached to it was really a coalition of a lot of actors out at the extremes of the right. I mean, we could talk about normal libertarians, Tea Party activists, as well as white nationalists and eventually these these uh, groupings that are more or less affiliated with by conspiracy theories like the QAnon grouping. President Trump's Twitter feed becomes a sort of meeting place for for all of these these people. We don't have I think a lot of great names to speak about them collectively, but this is this is the MAGA movement. This is the, you know, the Trump devotees. Diehard supporters that that have since become a major a major force, political force uh, in in the country as as we saw at the events at the Capitol earlier.
0: And now that Twitter has banned President Trump, critics have had a lot to say about that. Casey, was Twitter violating the First Amendment when it banned President Trump?
4: So the First Amendment protects people from suppression of their speech by the government. Uh, So for example, uh, there was once a a state law that prohibited social media use by people who were uh, convicted sex offenders. And that law was unconstitutional because it was the state suppressing uh, someone's ability to be on social media. However, social media platforms can make whatever policies they like uh, within within some small bounds and enforce uh, those policies. So, no, it, it was not an infringement of a constitutionally protected right to free speech.
0: So these platforms, they're not governments. They are owned by private companies, but they're enforcing their terms of use. And some argue that they're enforcing them unevenly. Have you seen that?
4: So... That's certainly difficult to say right? without a lot of data about exactly how they're enforcing these policies. I have seen uh, some researchers suggest that uh, the suppression of of certain ideologies might not be as strong as some people uh, were were stating that it was. As far as I can tell, the policies that are being enforced both by uh, Twitter, the App Store, AWS or policies around things like uh, misleading information about election outcomes or inciting violence. At least uh, that is what they're saying. The policies they're they're enforcing are not any say particular political ideology.
0: Shortly after Twitter banned the president, the ACLU raised the concern that it set a dangerous precedent and that perhaps more marginalized voices could also be banned in the future.
4: What do you make of that concern? I actually think that is a very reasonable concern. Um, and and for example, this is not the first time that the App Store has uh, suspended social media platforms. For example, Tumblr was suspended for a while a couple of years ago uh, for not moderating um, certain types of of adult content. And and people's reaction, you know, to that particular suspension was was quite different. So I think that it's really important that when we're talking about, you know, suspending or, or banning people or platforms, that they're really clear Policy violations that can be that can be pointed to, and not just you know general ideologies or or anything like that. Now, Benjamin, what do we know about
0: how the far right is congregating now?
2: Well, one thing that we we do see is that alternative platforms or, or outlets to Twitter, to Facebook, to YouTube, have seen a real surge in in participation in the weeks following the, the capital attack, and that also gives us gives us some indication of the size of this population, this MAGA movement that I was speaking about earlier. Uh, for example, on on Telegram, and over a period of just about three days, t- Telegram, by the way, is a sort of chat app um, that you can load down to your phone. They saw a surge of about 25 million registrations over, over the course of three days, um, which is gigantic gab which is another social media site saw saw a, a more modest surge but but people are moving around and and it's it, as you see this happening it's a reminder of the fact that that these social media companies yes they're very very powerful and we we've, we've seen an exercising of their authority over their own their own sites in our public discourse that can be concerning in some ways, but of equal concern is the fact that they're not cracking down, so to say, on a very small population. They're cracking down on a huge population that is going to be, I think, able to, to marshal new resources and build an even more impervious media echo chamber uh, in, in the months and years to come.
0: Parlor was one of the apps that disappeared from the internet after the insurrection. Um, it was dropped by Amazon Incorporated's hosting arm and other partners, but Reuters reported on Monday that it's actually reappeared with the support from a Russian technology firm. What does that indicate to you about these platforms and how they're reforming?
2: Well, that, that they are, that they are going to be resilient and that they're going to find some way, way to exist. Um, they if it's and, and we might we might come to a place where, where outlets like Fox News are essentially the bridge between the two media media spheres, um, they're going to build another echo chamber that is even even more deeply isolated from from other mainstream outlets. And and the story with parlors is, is a is a great example of that.
0: Um, and Casey, last summer, the CEOs of big tech companies went to Washington to answer questions for a Judiciary Committee hearing, and Republicans accused them of an anti-conservative bias.
4: Was there merit to those claims? You know, again, it's hard to say. I have, I have seen uh, some, some researchers who are looking at removed content suggesting that that bias is not as clear as some people think that it is. Um, You know, it is possible, of course, that some political ideology sort of co-varies with certain kinds of content violations. And so it might seem, for example, if a certain kind of content is being removed. And right now, the big example, of course, is inciting violence, which is what we saw quite objectively on, on Parler. If you know the people are doing that, happen to have a pol- particular political ideology right now, it might seem like bias against that ideology, which is another reason why I do think that it's important that policies are clear in terms of why content is being removed. And
0: do you want to weigh in on the how these companies, or rather how these platforms, are reforming,
4: Casey? Um, you know, I I do think that there's some merit in there being a place for different kinds of conversations as long as it's you know not having a negative impact on on the rest of the world which is which is where these rules against inciting violence come from but i i do think that were it not for this kind of illegal activity Having a platform where people feel comfortable expressing their ideas if they don't feel comfortable on some other platform uh, is a good thing. I, you know, I think it's possible that one outcome of all of this is that even more so than now, people might start choosing their social media platforms in the same way that they choose their news sources. yeah. We're going to have to wrap up here. I want to
0: thank you both so much for joining us. Casey Fuesler is an assistant professor of information science at CU Boulder. Benjamin Teitelbaum, an assistant professor of ethnomusicology and international affairs, also CU Boulder. 2020 was one of the driest and warmest years ever recorded. High temperatures and little rainfall meant last year was the second driest and seventh warmest year ever. Here in Colorado, the conditions kick-started a drought that reached every corner of the state and will likely last through the spring. Rising temperatures over the last decade also set the stage for dramatic and destructive events, including two of the largest wildfires the state has ever experienced. NOAA and NASA just released new climate data that paints a picture of the conditions around the globe. We're diving into that data to see where Colorado fits with Robert Field. He's a research scientist with NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. Morning, Robert. Good morning. What does the new data tell us about global climate change?
1: 2020, this year's data shows us that 2020 tied statistically with 2016 as being the warmest on record since the late 1800s when those measurements began. You know, it's interesting to compare individual years, but the important point is that is just part of a longer term trend from decade to decade in global warming. The warming this year was driven by exceptionally warm temperatures across Siberia, but that was also reflected in warmer temperatures across most of North America, including the Western US and Colorado. So
0: Colorado was not the only place that was warm and dry this year.
1: It it was not. There were very few places that were um, pockets of cooler temperatures over the Southern Ocean and maybe over the North Atlantic, but over most of Northern Hemisphere land. All of Northern Hemisphere land, it was warmer than a baseline average, and that is the continuation of the trend we've seen uh, due to global warming.
0: Help us understand where you get these results. Where did NASA and NOAA scientists get the data? How was it recorded and analyzed?
1: Sure. The backbone of those measurements are weather stations on land and over the ocean from ships and buoys. But the starting point for those measurements is just from simple thermometers over land that are corrected for changes in the urban environment, for example, that are quality-controlled there are also measurements from a satellite. They are all consistent with what we're measuring on the Earth's surface of a warming trend.
0: And how do you think about building public trust in climate data? How can people be sure that this is data that they can trust?
1: Uh, they can go get it. Uh, and in most cases, in the case of our lab, uh, at least they can, um, they can download load the raw data. They can see the computer code that's used to process the data and they can read the peer-reviewed publications that have, at this point, exhaustively considered all reasonable ways of analyzing the data to see that no matter how you slice it, the answer is always the same.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about Colorado specifically. Colorado is in drought. It's been described as a mega drought. What's the long-term effect here in Colorado and across the Mountain West?
1: Yeah, that drought in part is driven by the warming trend and that the warmer temperatures haven't been offset by more precipitation. You can see that really across most of the western U.S. right now. Last summer during the fire season, you know, the western half of the state at least was under extreme drought conditions with pockets of exceptional drought that extended into Utah and northern California. And the implications of that are broad on farming, agriculture first and foremost, and then also on forest health and the potential from year to year for fire activity.
0: And two of the largest fires ever recorded in Colorado, they happened last year. Firefighters and researchers, they tell us that this fire season has shifted and that fires are also burning faster and behaving differently than fires in the past. Is climate change the factor here?
1: Yeah, it is. First of all, the fire season is is longer um, because of an earlier spring and a later winter, so that opens the that widens the window where fires can burn, and that's driven by warmer temperatures. The warming across the state hasn't been offset by more rainfall, which could, in theory, keep the landscape sort of an average uh, level of flammability, but that hasn't happened. Fire activity across the western U.S. has gone up since the mid '80s when modern records began. And from year to year, you can there's a relationship between how dry it was, the aridity, and how much fire activity there was. And it's a non-linear relationship too. For every sort of unit increase in dryness, you get a disproportionately large increase in fire activity. I mean, one thing, I spent a lot of time this summer, some of the fire data and the the smoke data measured from satellites over the Western US which is really about 20 years long. And what struck me were the records being broken in Colorado and California, similar situations in both states, and that you had record-breaking burned area this year, and that was driven by a handful of massive fires. So both states had their single largest fires in modern recorded history, and um, that really stood out. And you could see that translate into some of the smoke data that we can measure from space. You can see record-breaking smoke levels in Colorado or across the Rocky Mountains uh, in general and really across the western U.S. So so if it seemed exceptionally smoky, that's because it was.
0: I can confirm that it certainly seemed smoky to live through and was pretty miserable to experience. But it's not just the miserable experience of living through smoke. That also matters for a changing climate
1: as well, right? Yep, For smoke, to me, there is a climatic effect. But the first thing I think of the smoke is on public health. And when you look at how much smoke there was and how long it lasted, too, you know, weeks on end without clean air, that has a direct impact on people with respiratory issues. Yeah. And every couple of years, we get one of these bad fire years. And you can see that in the year to year relationships across the forested regions of the Western US, including Colorado, that dryness. The part of it that is due to climate change has has departed from the natural year-to-year changes that you would see in the absence of climate change. So there's a, there's a climate change signal in the year-to-year relationships between how hot and dry it is and the amount of fire that you get.
0: And these signals, they don't stop with the summer. So let's talk about something of great importance to many Coloradans, snow skiing season. It's off to a slow start this year due to low snowpack in the mountains. Oh, I'm
1: sorry to hear that. Same
0: yeah. here. Oh, no. And tell us where you are.
1: I'm in New York, but, you know, it's not Colorado grade uh, skiing upstate, but we're also it's looking pretty lean out there.
0: So tell us more about the lean snow condition. Does the climate change data give us any long term forecast on the future yeah. of snow in the North America, but also the Rocky Mountains in particular?
1: Yeah. Well, you, first of all, you can see uh, there will be less snow in the future. Um, and, and there has been less snow in the past since the 1950s, at least. Uh, snowpack almost um, universally over the western US over the Rockies has decreased because of those warmer temperatures and the and the absence of compensating snowfall during the winter right um, and the um, and that will only continue into the future but you can see that in the data in in snowpack data and then also in measurements from satellite there's just less snow uh, and that's also. Because of that earlier spring onset, so it's warmer, it's a it's warmer and shorter winters.
0: That is disappointing for all of us who ski to here. Indeed. We have heard some climate scientists describe the symptoms of climate change as global weirding. Global warming just doesn't quite capture the way the changing climate exacerbates weather extremes. Hotter hot weather in some places, colder cold weather in others. Last year in Colorado, we experienced our first ever derecho windstorm and some wild 100 degree temperature swings. Can we expect more climate change weirdness?
1: Yeah, no reason to not expect it. Some of the second-order climate effects, like on on wildfire, for example, there's over, over most parts of the world, in the absence of big changes in fire management strategies or in the absence of more compensating rainfall, the warmer temperatures will lead to more fire. And the response in fire activity becomes... Disproportionate to the increase in temperature, and we're seeing that now. We're we're in it. It's no longer something that's going to happen in the future.
0: Well, is there any good news in the new climate data? Could you give us a glimmer of hope here?
1: Um, I don't. It's hard. To, <laughs> I mean, uh, it's hard to define good. Um, well, in the you know, I guess global warming is driven primarily by increased. CO2 concentrations the driven by fossil fuel burning i think the good news is that there have been dramatic improvements in the affordability of renewable energy sources whether they be solar or wind powered you know so the possibility to reduce emissions is there in the actual climate data itself it's uh it's hard to see any uh any good news but in the in the possibility of reducing emissions, which are ultimately driving that global weirding. That's, to me, where the hope is.
0: Talk to me more about the potential for those renewable energy sources to show up in new data if those are adopted. I think there is a sense Ah, that we've come too far and that you can't do anything about it and we're just on a track now.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely false. You know, the best Time to start reducing emissions was 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, The second best time is now, and it's never too late to change course. There's no cliff that we're headed off of. It will be a, you know, we're on a slow trajectory. It will take a Herculean effort to turn the ship around, but it can always be done. And any reduction in, in emissions is an improvement.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thanks. I'm happy to, Avery.
0: Robert Field is a research scientist with NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. When we come back, state lawmakers get back to work or at least start the process. We'll get a handle on their priorities. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
5: The coronavirus vaccine is rolling out across the state, and CPR News has what you need to know about when it's your turn. You'll find complete coverage online, including our guide to COVID vaccines in Colorado, with details on different phases of vaccine distribution statewide and a county-by-county guide to make appointments now for adults over 70. Search for COVID vaccines in Colorado, your always up-to-date guide, at CPR.org. The
0: state legislature reconvened and recessed last week as the pandemic continues to disrupt business as usual inside the state capitol. Let's get a handle on what happened and what's ahead with Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Here are hosts Caitlin Kim, Andrew Kenny, and Benta Berkland.
6: Well, the session was different than it usually is. It wasn't quite as celebratory, but you still have people who campaigned hard, who won their elections, who are in the halls of the state capitol. It's still beautiful. Um, I talked to two Democratic lawmakers, and they were just kind of in disbelief that they were finally there after all the doors they've knocked on and going through COVID. And one of them, Representative um, Bacon, said, like, well, we were just regular people a few years ago going to events. So there was still a sense of excitement. Um, we have some first, we have our first state lawmaker who uses a wheelchair, our first Muslim lawmaker, and then our first lawmaker who's an African immigrant. Really? Who is that? That's Nakita Ricks. Her family fled Liberia when she was a child, and she said they left a coup, and she saw what happened on the U.S. Capitol as an attempted coup. She said it was just really kind of shocking to to watch it play out, and D.C. was definitely on her mind on opening
5: day. Not to see it in the great United States, right? And then the fight that fight that is going on now, I just don't think it should be a fight. I mean, we have to protect our democracy at all costs.
6: Mm. I would add, though, that she was still thrilled to be at the Colorado Capitol. Lawmakers from across the political spectrum said that they feel the weeks coming up are going to be critically important when it yeah. comes to COVID relief and things on transportation, health care. I mean, we're going to see a lot of big policy proposals. And so a lot of lawmakers are anxious to get to work, which will really start in mid-February.
3: Wow. So it sounds like a mix of you know, that kind of classic awe and wonder of being in the big building with, of course, the dread and division of modern politics. Um, Speaking of, are we seeing new security? How are they handling this second session of the pandemic?
6: The building's open to the public, but there were very few people inside the building. Mm. So lawmakers... You know, weren't allowed to have all their family members and such on the chamber floors. The Colorado Capitol has metal detectors, lawmakers, nonpartisan staff, People who have offices in the Capitol have a badge and they go around the metal detectors. So Mm. we do have lawmakers in Colorado who have concealed carry permits Mm. and are carrying on the chamber floors. You know, they don't go through the metal detector. Members of the public, that's not the case because you do have to go through a metal detector.
5: Well, actually, but even here in the Capitol, staff have to go through a metal detector. Even though I have a badge, I have to go through the metal detectors. It was just lawmakers that didn't. Mm. Oh, okay, Interesting.
3: Yeah, it's that question of whether lawmakers are willing to force other lawmakers to do things, and we saw that earlier with, uh, you know, mask wearing and COVID restrictions. Uh, I'll also add that the Colorado lawmakers are talking about some major security projects for the building. That conversation started back in the summer when the building was defaced during some of the larger protests. Um, that eventually could mean more fences, more cameras fortified doors, but we, we're not seeing that quite yet. So anyway, Bento, what are they actually doing back in the building?
6: Well, constitutionally, they had to start the session on the date they started it. They have to swear in new lawmakers. And then there's some bills related to COVID relief that they wanted to clean up and, and pass. Mm. They We had a special session not long ago in December related to COVID. And then they're going to take this pause. And the pause is allowed. It's legal because uh, we're in a declared state of emergency. Mm. So the legislature really won't get underway in full until February 16th. And so that's when everyone will be back. Most lawmakers are getting vaccines. Mm -hmm. If they choose to get a vaccine, it's available to them. Um, So there will be more people vaccinated in the building. Mm. And when all the big bills start getting introduced, it's going to bring people to the Capitol to testify, even though The state has expanded remote testifying capabilities and tried to make things more virtual. Mm -hmm. So there still will be people who want to come to the Capitol in person.
3: Well, I think it's going to be harder to track some of the big discussions that I'm sure will be happening even before they return to the building next month. But what do we know about what the big priorities this year will be? We've got Democratic majorities once again in the Senate and the House. What have we heard about that you think they'll be discussing in February?
6: I may mean, have heard a lot of you know uh, looking at transportation funding and trying to come up with a, an agreement on to increase fees around that to pay for projects. Democrats have said they want to focus on climate change. They want to focus on housing. Lawmakers in both parties want to look at recovering from this pandemic Mm -hmm. and what that looks like and helping small businesses and helping individuals. And Republicans uh, in the Senate, especially, want to put things in place to give the legislature more authority in the future if we're ever under a declared state of emergency, because it gives the governor so much power for executive orders, and they're considering ideas to require the legislature to come in and review things after certain times, and there's some ideas being floated, but I, I know that'll be a point of discussion as well.
3: Yeah, I've heard the same thing, Benta. Um, Republicans on opening day were talking not just about what role does the legislature play in these public health emergencies, but also what role does the minority party, aka Republicans, get to play in making laws? They want to know, basically, are they what input are they going to have? What role will they play from the position of not holding power? Uh, One other thing that you mentioned that's obviously going to be big is uh, further stimulus spending, both from the feds and from any extra money that the state might have lying around. Where are you hearing on that front, Benta?
6: I think we're, obviously, that's a huge priority. And some of the budget committee members I talked to said they were waiting to see what's going to happen at the federal level. And Caitlin, I don't know how quickly we can expect to see something, but depending upon a federal stimulus and if it. Money can go to states or local governments, you know, that will have an impact for sure on our state budget and and programs that
5: lawmakers hope to push out. Right. And and I do know that the Biden administration is planning on having stimulus um, and and dealing with this coronavirus as one of its main priorities coming in. It's just a matter of how quickly he can get support within Congress, especially a 50-50 Senate. Um, I think that's gonna be the key. How many senators uh Biden can convince on the Republican side to join on some of the stimulus? When you have people like Joe Manchin, um, a conservative Democrat, saying he's not going to be supportive of, for example, a $2,000 stimulus check.
3: And that also shapes decisions that the state government makes. You know, the state government has some extra money that they could theoretically spend or that they could save for later. And the decisions about whether to spend that one-time money will depend on whether they think they're going to get that federal backup.
5: Right. And as you know, state and local aid has been a very contentious point here in Congress between Republicans and Democrats. And whether Biden can actually paper over some of those rifts uh, really does remain to be seen.
3: Well, even in chaotic times, we like to keep one thing the same. Uh, we like to, at the end of this show, share a moment, a wait, what, 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 what Something what, that what, made what, us pause what, and ask, what, what was that? And I know that tens of people are demanding that we keep this tradition up to keep the country together <laughs> in this time. Um, <laughs> I know that a lot of politics is probably counted as a wait, what moment lately, but I understand that Benta has one in particular to share with us.
6: Yes, and this is a good wait, what moment. So I was at the state capitol the day before opening day and, and watching people get ready and, you know, just prepare for everyone to be back at the Capitol. And I heard this. So I thought, wait, what's that? So I I went to the Senate chamber and it was Senate President Leroy Garcia, I had no idea he was a very accomplished piano player, and Senate Minority Leader Chris Holbert on guitar, and they were rehearsing the national
3: anthem. <laughs> a notoriously difficult song.
4: Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
6: moment I mean especially a few years ago I mean Holbert sued Garcia over a procedural fight and you know they had had a very tense relationship at times and so it was nice to see this duet music bridging divides everywhere
3: that's right you
6: just need to get someone to play the guitar in Congress when you need to find out who the best musicians are in Congress and have them do
5: a little performance I'm I'm gonna say this right before they broke for Christmas Republican senator Lamar Alexander uh, was playing Christmas tunes for senators in the building. And Tim Kaine came up with his harmonica and they were doing duets. And it was like such a heartwarming. It really is a heartwarming moment. I feel like a lot of the politics we talk about is division and people like your rancor and and all that. It's nice to have these moments of, yeah, yeah, people can get along. So- <laughs> you know,
3: I think that that idea of like decorum and these nice moments makes some people roll their eyes. But I also think that when those things disappear, when you don't have those moments, that's a sign of something worse. When when they go away, I don't think it's a good thing.
5: Well, but Benta, to your point, I will try and encourage the Colorado delegation to start maybe like, I don't know, an acapella band or something. <laughs> that would be
6: awesome.
3: <laughs> might not be the time for that, <laughs> COVID and all. Anyway.
0: CPR Public Affairs reporters Andrew Kenny, Benta Berkland, and Caitlin Kim with an excerpt of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Hear the complete episode at Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. The year is off to a great start for UFO buffs. Last week, the CIA declassified documents related to unidentified flying objects, and the Department of Defense is supposed to submit a report to Congress this spring about the reported sightings it's investigated. Previously, the Pentagon has authenticated videos that have been around publicly for a few years, like this one.
1: There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the oh my gosh going against the wind. The wind's 120 the
0: west. The Navy pilots we just heard didn't know what to make of what they saw, but those videos got a lot of people excited, people who think the object came from Earth and those who don't. Denver author and popular science contributing editor Sarah Skulls talked with people in both camps. Her book explores their fascination with UFOs. It's called They Are Already Here, UFO Culture and Why We See Saucers. We spoke in June. Hi, Sarah.
7: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: We're going to talk ufology, the study of UFOs. We've all heard the term UFO, but I understand its definition has actually led to a new acronym as well. Can you
7: explain that evolution? Sure. Once the Pentagon started talking about UFOs, they began to call them UAP or Unidentified aerial phenomena, which kind of divorces them from this old extraterrestrial connotation they always had and also leaves more room for military stuff, like the fact that they might just be stuff, um, you know, foreign objects uh, going into airspace they're not supposed to go to or things that can't be uh, identified immediately. So it's kind of an attempt to, to make a new cultural meaning out of what UFO used to be.
0: And you found that apparently there are certain people who are more
7: likely to see a UFO or UAP. Who are they? (laughs) Yeah, this actually comes from some statistical work that a woman named Cheryl Costa has done, and she found that the people who are most likely to see UFOs are people who have dogs and people who smoke because they are outside on the regular at kind of the same times of day, and they know what the sky looks like and when something looks off with it.
0: That's so interesting. And you even had a time that you thought you saw a
4: UFO.
7: What happened? Yeah, I did. And it was very unexpected. I was up in Wyoming with friends watching the the solar eclipse that happened a few years ago. Um, and we were just camping and uh, it was wildfire season, so we couldn't have a campfire. So we were just staring up at the stars and we saw this little light going in an arc and we, you know, we assumed it was a satellite. And then all of a sudden, this spotlight seems to appear from it and kind of sweep down and stare directly at us. And we all thought, oh my gosh, it knows It knows we're here. What is that? Are we about to be tracked or beamed up into a UFO? Um, and then it just kind of swept away and and disappeared. Um, and then a few minutes later, I remembered something that I knew, which is that there's a phenomenon called an iridium flare, which comes from uh, an iridium communication satellite where the sun kind of reflects off its big solar panels and uh, creates this flash that looks like it's pointing directly at you like a spotlight. But um, it was... Uh, creepy and wonderful
0: (laughs) so even though you have this scientific knowledge that goes with it you do have this moment of kind of collective imagination even within your group
7: oh sure yeah i think i think a part of everyone's brain a would be really excited to see a ufo and just like before your rational brain kicks in um you know it's your your fear brain is like something is is coming to get me and uh, i was with a group of scientists actually and we all we all thought the same thing even though um in some sense we knew better
0: now, you've attended a number of events where people gather to talk about UFOs. Many of them believe they've seen a UFO, but not all of them will want to talk about it. There's a passage in the book where you consider why they might be reluctant to talk about their experiences. It's on page 19. It says, seeing a UFO and interpreting it is as something extraordinary, seems a little bit like a doomed, lost kind of romantic love. It comes along when you're not looking for it, it amps up your ordinary experience, invigorates your day, your neurons fire with something so far outside your normal life that the world seems magical. And then... When it goes away and you return to baseline after dipping, probably far below, you start searching for that experience again. But of course, you can't will it to happen and it's not the kind of thing you can really explain satisfactorily to anyone who wasn't there. It's not even an experience you can really re-inhabit yourself once it's gone. Tell me what it's like to attend an event like this where people are searching for that, but at the same time don't really know how to talk about it.
7: Yeah, I think people like like that passage describes these these experiences that people have are very meaningful. And even mine, which I later was able to explain, um, you know, you really just have this sense of wonder and connection to the universe and a sense of uh, mystery that's really not often present in our everyday modern lives. When you know most things for lots of people are are pretty easy, and um, I think people have a hard time explaining to someone who wasn't there what this kind of singular experience was like. And and it's almost like a a spiritual experience for a lot of people. But it is it is hard to get people to be able to to describe it in a way that really brings back the feeling that they had when they were having it.
0: Now, not everyone interested in UFOs wears a tinfoil hat. I'd imagine most don't. Uh, What did you learn about who the people are who make up this UFO community?
7: Right. Actually, uh, you know, when I started doing research from this book, I had a lot of preconceived ideas about who was interested in UFOs, which was mostly hardcore conspiracy theorists, which it turns out is not not true at all. Um, uh, I think one in six people has seen a UFO and many more than that believe that there, there's more to this phenomenon than meets the eye. And um There is a group of people that is very large, that is just kind of uh, what I call agnostically interested in UFOs. You know, they have this problem. It's been around for decades and decades, and no one has been able to explain it. And so they can just, you know, research, they can get government documents, they can do interviews with witnesses, and they really go about it in a a really investigatory, uh, almost journalistic way. And that, that really surprised me. And not to
0: tarnish the magic, but what might people actually be seeing when they think they've seen a UFO? You already gave one explanation for when you saw your satellite.
7: Yeah, there's a number of explanations, and um, I'll say before I before I explain what they might be that in in every you know UFO, UFO investigation program that has happened, there does remain this small percentage that is unidentified, no matter how hard people try to explain them. So there does seem to be something, you know, mysterious going on up there, but um actually really really everyday things like the planet Venus can look truly strange when it's really close to the horizon and flickering and um it ca- it can honestly look like a flying saucer. Um especially in places like here in Colorado where there's a lot of um Air Force and military activity, they could be, you know, flight exercises or uh secret aircraft that the public isn't privy to. Um, Some people suspect that there's some some kind of electronic warfare going on that's confusing, um, you know, the the military pilots. Um, And then, honestly, I mean, even things like commercial planes can look very strange if they're coming at you head on. Um, And, yeah, so there's a number of explanations, but there is this percentage that that no one has been able to figure out.
0: And I understand that they can usually identify about 90 percent or more of UFOs. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. We played some audio in the introduction of Navy pilots who spotted some strange things. What do you think they
7: saw? <laughs> um, I really, really wish I knew. And if you figure it out, I would like to know. <laughs> um, yeah, it's hard to know because those the, the videos that we have and that, um, you know, a lot of the public has seen in various news stories, we just get a small snippet of what's clearly something much longer that has a lot of other data, like radar data, associated with it. And so I don't, I don't really think I'm qualified to say what they are. But lately, when the Pentagon talks about these videos or talks about its interest in these so-called UAP. It simultaneously also talks about how drone systems are much more common than they used to be. And so it seems like there's some kind of association there.
0: Now, one of your sources said the government had a policy of publicly debunking and treating lightly while privately investigating and treating seriously reports of UFOs. How has that affected what the public thinks about UFOs?
7: Uh, quite a bit, I think. So, in the in the mid 20th century, there were a number of programs that ran for decades. Um, federal programs in the U.S. to investigate UFOs, and uh, like this researcher said. The, the military invested money, invested time, invested people in figuring out what people were seeing, but at the same time, what it would say to the public is, oh, you don't need to worry about it. Here Here's a bunch of explanations that we're going to put in a magazine article for, for how much you don't need to care about these. Um, and historically, the um, the military and intelligence communities have been worried that UFO reports would you know, cause mass panic among people or clog intelligence channels. And so they have kind of a vested interest in, in soothing our minds about it and getting, getting people not to pay attention. And that has understandably made people mistrustful of what the government has to say about UFOs because it doesn't tell us what it tells itself.
0: And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the difference between unidentified and unidentifiable flying objects.
7: Yeah, that's kind of a semantic but important difference. Um, Unidentified just means like I could look up, um, you know, I could look up at the sun right now, which is not advisable, um, and, you know, forget what it was and not know what it is. And that would make it unidentified to me. But, you know, someone else could go outside and point at the sun and say, well, of course, that to the sun. So it is clearly identifiable. And so the difference really is whether whoever is observing or whatever instrument is observing can immediately tell what something is or whether no one, given a lot of time to investigate, can figure out what something is. I also
0: want to know about maybe the most iconic of UFOs. Let's talk about flying saucers. Where did that term come from?
7: Yeah, it has an interesting origin story um, that happened in the 1940s when there was a pilot named Kenneth Arnold who uh, was flying around. He was actually looking for a, a military aircraft that had crashed, and what he saw instead instead was this fleet of objects flying much faster than he thought anything of the day flew, um, and he got back down on the ground and told people about it, told a reporter about it, said, you know, these things were going so fast. I have no idea what they were. And they skipped like saucers on water. Um, and that's that's what he says, he said. But then the reporter transcribed that as they looked like flying saucers in their shape. And so that's when, what went out over the news wires. And that's what ended up in a bunch of headlines. And so uh, according to the story, the term flying saucer is actually just a transcription mistake.
0: <laughs> and the story of flying saucers is connected to Roswell, New Mexico, a place known for UFOs. What's that connection?
7: Yeah, it was just a few months after that very first sighting that a rancher in outside of Roswell, New Mexico, was kind of, you know, checking out his distant property and came across this debris um, you know that looked like it had fallen from the sky and uh, he had read a news article about these flying saucers and he thought well hey maybe this stuff on my property is one of those flying saucers and so you know he brought it to the local authorities who brought it to the military who actually put out a press release that said yeah we got one of those flying saucers here in New Mexico um, and then they retracted it um, and said that it was just a weather balloon but that wasn't actually true and it came out decades later, that it was actually a very secret uh, atomic test detection balloon that had crashed on his property.
0: That's so interesting, especially going back to this idea that saucer was maybe not even the shape that the earlier 1940s pilot was trying to describe. Um,
7: Right, right. It just goes to show the power of the media.
0: (laughs) There is an alphabet soup of organizations and government programs, some still in existence, some defunct, dedicated to studying UFOs. How does Colorado fit into the larger UFO community?
7: Colorado has quite a few UFO sightings and a very active uh, local group called the Mutual UFO Network. It's a chapter of a national organization, Um, MUFON, is, is what they call themselves. And this is just a group of, you know... Private citizens who are independently interested in UFOs and also interested in identifying the ones that can be identified. And so people get training um, and they if you saw a UFO, you could submit a report to MUFON and someone who lives here in Colorado would contact you and try to figure out with you what you saw. Um, And so we have a very active group there. And then we're also home to the UFO Watchtower out near Great Sand Dunes National Park, which is uh, uh, an attraction where, you know, people, people gather, look for UFOs, go camping and then, you know, submit their sightings to a sighting book and museum. Sarah, thank you so much for joining
0: us. Thank you. Denver Science journalist and author Sarah Scholes. Her book is They Are Already Here, UFO Culture and Why We See Saucers. We spoke last June. This past week, the CIA released documents it's collected about UFO sightings. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thank you for joining us and thanks to the out-of-this-world team that helps bring this show to air.
5: Carl Bielich, Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle
4: Fulcher.
3: Matt Hers, Michael Hughes.
5: Carla Jimenez.
3: Pedro Lumbrano.
5: Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon.
3: Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. Paolo Shalsana.
5: And I'm
0: Avery Lil. You can get Colorado Matters anytime. Just ask your smart speaker to play podcast Colorado Matters.
6: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.